The Prevention and Early Intervention Network is pleased to bring to you our podcast series, Perspectives on Prevention. My name is Marion Quinn, and in this podcast, I'll be meeting people who have experiences to share, insights to explore, and expertise to draw on from the field of child and family services. We hope these conversations inspire, challenge, and engage anyone interested in improving outcomes for children, families, and communities. I was delighted to catch up with Eddie Darcy for our Perspectives on Prevention podcast series. We discuss Eddie's belief in the importance of sticking with young people and never giving up. I've always believed that no matter how disadvantaged a young person is, it is always possible to build a relationship with them. And in fact, over my years in Town and now in the Southwest Inner City, I actually believe that the more difficult the circumstances a young person is in, in fact, in many ways, it is easier to build a cognitive relationship with them because they're in so much trouble and because nobody else has ever stuck with them that when you do build that relationship, it's a really, really strong relationship because they really value it. Mm-hmm. Because you may be the only adult in their life that is prepared to spend time with them despite everything that's going on for them. We also talk about some of the structural issues that impact on young people at risk. If less than 3% of the young people from the schools we work in go on to, tur- to, to university, but there are, you know, if you, travel, if, you, if you travel two miles down the road, you know, to, to schools in, in other areas of the city, 98% would be going on to third level. There's something structurally wrong there. I'm delighted to welcome Eddie Darcy to this episode of our Perspectives on Prevention podcast. Eddie has been involved in youth work for many, many years, a long time in Ronanstown in Clondalkin, working in the community there, and then more recently working in the southwest inner city with the Solace Project, driving some really amazing, innovative work. And Eddie, I think it's fair to say that one of the common themes in your career has been a focus on young people at the kind of harder end of the extreme if we think about intervention and support as a continuum that you have focused largely on the younger people who are further along that continuum so I'm wondering maybe we might just start by hearing about kind of what you've learned or what your insights are about how to build relationships with young people that many of us would find challenging or hard to reach. Sure. Yeah, Marion, I've always been very interested in that group of young people who are at that, that end of the extreme. And in many cases, they're young people that have other agencies have unsuccessfully tried to intervene with and have dropped them. You know, in fact, I presented a recent case to the the new Youth Justice Strategy Group and um, because they'd asked me to identify a case. And I think that young person had 22 unsuccessful interventions by a whole range of different organisations in his life and had left them quite damaged from the point of view. He he felt he was the, the problem and nobody could do anything for him and he was going to inevitably end up in prison, you know. And secondly, I've always felt that in many cases, I think it's a natural slide for agencies including agencies I've worked with myself, to, to, to slide towards less difficult young people because you can be more successful with them. And, you know, in other words, your, your, your uh, outcomes and your outputs at the end of the year seem to be a lot more successful. But unfortunately, interventions have always left a cohort of young people who invariably 
are written off by state agencies and voluntary agencies on the basis that there's no point in working with them. They're going to prison anyway. And in many cases, that decision was taken for some of those young people as young as 16. And invariably, they do end up in prison. If you look at our prison population at the moment, it's, it probably hovers in around 5,000. The vast majority of them are young men who have gone to prison at a fairly early age. And a percentage of them will continue to go in and out of prison, probably right through their 20s into their early 30s. So I've always felt it's a, an enormous waste of human life, locking up so many young men for, in some cases, what are relatively minor offences, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's just that they would, may have committed numerous offences as opposed to just one offence in that. And I, I've always believed that no matter how disadvantaged a young person is, it is always possible to build a relationship with them. And in fact, over my years in Ronanstown and now in the Southwest Inner City, I actually believe that the more, the more difficult the circumstances the young person is in, in fact, in many ways, it is easier to build a cognitive relationship with them because they're in so much trouble and because nobody else has ever stuck with them. That when you do build that relationship, it's a really, really strong relationship because they really value it. Mm -hmm. Because you may be the only adult in their life that is prepared to spend time with them despite everything that, that's going on for them. So, but I mean, I think for that to happen, you have to commit yourself to be genuinely non-judgmental and genuinely agree with the young person that no matter what happens, you're going to hang on in there with them. So even if they continue to offend at a high level, even if their offenses are, are of a pretty horrific nature, once you make that commitment, you're going to hang on in there. You have to hang on in there. And if you hang on in there through a number of crises, it's only then they actually begin to believe, well, maybe what this guy or this girl says, maybe they're actually true because he's still there for me. He still calls around. So mm -hmm. any sense that a youth or might, writer might, might have internally that I've, I've had to put my heart and soul into this youngster for the last year. And I'm about to get a phone call at the weekend to say he's just been arrested in a stolen car and he's been charged with assault and a charge was taken. He's had to let me down enormously. I don't think we have the right to feel that way or to say that way because that's our job. Our job is to support them. So mm. they may feel embarrassed. They may feel that they've let us down, but we can't. It, it's our job to go in there and keep that relationship going. So I, 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 mean, I think all my experience has shown me is that it is possible to build a relationship with that, that cohort of young people, and it is possible to maintain that relationship. But you, you, you and your organization have to be prepared to continue to work with them. So if you work for an organization that says, okay, he's after re-offending. I'm sorry, he's off the program. You know, in other words, we gave him a chance and he's let us down. Oh, he's off the program. I don't think that's in the interest of any young person. And I think even though the organization may be embarrassed because the young person is associated with them, that's, the, that's what we've signed up to do. How do you, as a manager, and, and presumably having, you know, supported lots of people over the years, how do you keep other people going when maybe they haven't had the experience of seeing that, that turning point for a young person? Yeah, I mean, it is a challenge. And uh, Marianne, like I lecture on the youth work course in Dundalk and, you know, finding qualified, competent youth workers for justice type project is a real challenge. It, it really is. Every, every project in Dublin faces a difficulty in finding good people, you know, because you're looking for that mixture of really good communication, personal skills, the academic background as well, so they understand exactly the processes they're trying to involve the young person in. And, and then somebody that is prepared to stick with it, you know, because as you say, it can be very, very challenging, you know. So for me, and I mean, I must admit, and I'm sure there's loads of people out there to say, I'm a very hard taskmaster, because I would set the bar very high for staff. My expectations would be high around staff, you know. Mm. I, you know, staff that would complain to me about, oh, I can't work with that young fellow, he's just impossible, or listen, you, you know, I can't work down there because it's a hellhole. I'd say, well, actually, 
that's what you signed up to do. So, I mean, if somebody tells you to F off or somebody threatens to stab you or someone threatens to smash your car up, they're the, they're the young people that you actually applied for a job to work with. So listen, get on with it. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I would be saying to staff, okay, you know, for me, the pace and the dosage is are two really, really important words. What's the, what is the right dosage in terms of our contact with this young person at this time? So we have to take it at a pace that, one, we are going to be able to develop a relationship, but at the same time, the young, we're not going to push the person into situations that they're not able for. So I'd be a big advocate for things like all our initial contact is going to be on the street because then you're not in trying to manage behaviour of young people who don't know you and don't trust you and whose general reaction is, I'm going to push me push this this youth work type person to the point to see it. Are they going to stick by me? So I bring you know you're bringing people into into programs or bringing people into centres and they're not ready, and then a young person reacts negatively, and that the relationship is inevitably damaged. So I would be saying to things, well, let's meet them on in their territory. Let's build a relationship on the street where we're not worried about buildings and we're not worried about cars and we're not worried about other people it's just us and them but obviously getting the dosage right for that is important um and and that kind of outreach work is 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 not common really anymore is it no now obviously we i've always done it in neilstown when i was there for the years i I actually i I actually i used to do a myself and another youth worker paddy always did a late night round on a friday night because it was the night that people drank and hung around we would we would only go out at 10 o'clock at night and we'd stay out till two or three in the morning because the youngsters we were trying to contact we needed to get, almost get rid of all the other youngsters out of our way first so we could concentrate on those that we knew were staying up half the night and drinking and whatever you know i've always felt it was a fantastic way of reaching out to those who are least likely to walk in the doors of any center and I, i'm still a huge advocate for it and i know the Sutter's project approach initially always is the outreach team you know, spend your time on the street where young people are. Get let them get to know you. Let you begin to drop the seeds of an idea that they may get involved in something with you. You know, so uh, very very keen around the uh, three phase uh, relationship building model. You know, the initial behavioural phase where they may be reluctantly getting involved with you, or maybe you're trying to push the relationship on them. And then obviously the you know the the emotional phase where they begin to enjoy participating in activity with them. And my idea is you give them small experiences let them reflect on it, let them enjoy it and let them come looking for more. And then obviously finally getting to the cognitive stage where they understand what our job really is and they understand that they're involved in the process with us and it isn't about bringing them go-karting or it isn't about bringing them, you know, peer jumping. It isn't about bringing them to the cinema. It's actually about helping them make changes in their life and that we do mm-hmm. believe in them. So I do think that the youth workers need the skill to get through those, that very, very difficult behavioural engagement phase. Mm-hmm. Once you do get through it, you can really, really create opportunities for those young people. It's getting through that initial point. The longer you're in an area, Marion, I've always found you build a relationship and a status for yourself. So in other words, other youngsters will do the relationship building for you because they'll be telling younger siblings or younger brothers, or they, they won't even have to tell them because older lads are involved with you and have respect and uh, you know get engaged in your programs. The next generation of youngsters coming up will see, well, he's a tough hard man. And he gets on well with Eddie or he's, you know, he he goes up to Eddie Centre. So there's no loss of status for me by going up there. So I can't can't wait to get up there. So so that that street credibility is really important to build up. Now, you know, the initial time you're doing it is is difficult. 
But I mean, once if you could hang on in there, dude, and I keeps telling youth work staff, you know, the first 18 months, the first two years is going to be difficult because they don't know who you, they don't know who you are. They don't trust you. When we started the Solace Outreach Team, we'd one girl who we employed and uh, she had a very strong Kerry accent and she was very tall. And the youngsters were convinced she was an undercover guard. Absolutely yeah, yeah, convinced. Yeah, yeah. You know? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't employ people from Kerry because yeah. right now, but I mean, she actually uh, had the, she actually was very good. She had the ability and did build a relationship with very, very difficult young people who had no relationship with any other adult. But obviously for her getting over that initial phase was a huge challenge. You're listening to Perspectives on Prevention. To subscribe to our podcast, go to Nearcast, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're recruiting staff, like it seems that sort of tenacity, you know, stickability is really yeah. important. How do you know whether people have it or not? Well, you don't. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes you take on staff that, you know, aren't going to stick it. You know, but generally I try to look for a mixture of staff that have had some experience of working in a difficult environment and have had some contact with challenging young people, but at the same time have a good understanding of what the of the of the uh, the theory behind what we're trying to achieve. You know, and and how important is that balance, Eddie? So you've mentioned a couple of times about you know a good youth worker needs to understand some of the theory. Yeah, but you've also talked about sort of personality traits. What what's the priority would you think well i i, I look for a bit of both I, I am very anxious to to employ staff that have an academic qualification because i think it gives them a good grounding what it's about like i lecture part-time under the dark horse at the moment and i enjoy it and i just see you know it, it the numbers involved are very very small so you do get to know the students well and you know part of the academic uh, program should be about students developing their ability to communicate it should be about them developing their ideas of what you do is about and uh, at the same time getting that that understanding but i do think that there's a huge dearth of in-service training and i know that in in our last program review in dundalk the feedback i was getting from the students that had got jobs in very difficult circumstances where you know well we you know every young person we're working with has some involvement with drugs there's no drug module on the on the youth work program so we've we've inserted a drug module onto the youth work program in dundalk and we've inserted a youth justice module onto the program in dundalk and maybe drop stuff that would maybe where might be relevant to a to a youth worker 15 years into the career but as it, most of these were going out and starting as frontline youth workers so you know changing the academic modules is important as well and yeah, like Mary, you know from your own time with copying on it was one of the few in-service programs that youth workers could actually do, particularly in the early years of the Garda Youth Diversion Projects, when youth justice was had, was, ne- was never part of anyone's training, you know. And in many cases, it still isn't. So, I mean, understanding the Children's Act, understanding why young people offend, understanding the processes that are involved there is, is really, really important, you know. So there are a lot of youth workers out there who w- would be anxious to do in-service training, but it's finding good in-service training programs for them. And there's a huge dirt, dirt in that, you know. But I do know at the moment it is very, very difficult finding qualified youth workers, competent youth workers in the greater Dublin area. It really okay. is a huge challenge. And it's, I think it's something that, that really needs to be looked at. Like, it's, you know yourself, it's not an easy job. Mm. You are asked to work with very challenging young people. It is asked of you that you actually have the skill 
to go out and involve them in your programs on a purely voluntary basis. Now, mm. at times I've heard youth workers talk about, oh, wouldn't it be great if the kids came here on court orders because we wouldn't have to put that energy in. But for me, that change is completely the whole dynamic. Mm -hmm. One of the huge, great resources we have is that we make it very clear to young people they're here on, on a voluntary basis. They're here because they want to be here. And if they walk out the door of our centre, there's no negative consequences. And I'm really strong on that piece, Marion. That's why I, I won't take young people on court orders because I did not want to be in a situation where I have to put a, a report into the court saying, well, actually, we haven't seen Marion Quinn for the last nine weeks. Mm. You know? So if a young person wants a court report from us, they, mm. I'll say to them, I'll give a court report, but it will be honest and accurate. I mean, that is um, a, that principle of of voluntary engagement is is aligned to your principle of never excluding yeah. anyone. So yeah. can you say a bit about why that's so important to you? Well, I think it's one of the few choices that those young people probably have. Nearly every other adult they deal with has power over them. So in other words, you know, when you go to school, you have to go to school. If you don't go to school, you're going to be in trouble. You know, there are going to be consequences for you and maybe your family. When you're in school, you know, we have the power over, over how you behave in school. We can exclude you if you want, if we want, you know. And I do, I do know one of the key risk factors for long-term offending is exclusion from school at an early age or long-term truancy, you know. And it's exclusion from school because of behavior, not because of any academic difficulties. But for me... You know, the, the, the one key greatest resource youth work has is that we engage young people on a voluntary basis. So we deliberately don't take any power over them. That's completely different to the relationship they have with the JLO and the probation officer and other adults. How, so, how do you align that approach to, to one that is very much about consequences, that we all need to understand that our actions have consequences. So how do those two, they seem contradictory. How do you yeah, they, align them? To some extent you might say, well, it's easy for you, you're off the hook. But I just think that our primary role is to try and build a relationship with those young people. And I think the voluntary bit is important. But I think alongside that is a, a requirement on youth workers and a really strong ethical requirement on youth workers that our part of our relationship has to be about challenge because if we're not challenging then in fact we're actually harming the young person so if i if i if, if, young, if i'm with a young person and they've been involved in joyriding and they're talking about joyriding and i'm not challenging that and not challenging their view of joyriding i'm doing the young person a, a considerable disfavor because i mean i don't what i don't want in their head is them saying well, Eddie knows we go joyriding and Eddie, we were talking about it in front of him in the, the centre last week about the car and he didn't say anything to me about it. So he must think it's, it's pretty, it's all right. Or I bring stolen goods into the centre. You know, it might be, I remember one situation where a young fellow arrived down in the centre of Nielsen with a, a box of bars of chocolates, which obviously he had robbed on the way down and was giving yeah. free chocolate out to everybody. And if I hadn't reacted to that, that young person would have said in his own head, well, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with robbing from the shops because sure, Eddie saw me giving out the chocolate I gave him a bar actually you know yeah and said nothing so it mustn't be that bad so I do think the challenge bit is really important but challenge can only work when you've built a relationship so uh, is challenge that you talked earlier about that three-phased approach yeah, yeah is it in the third phase that that challenge becomes the, the, kind the, of more the, more, the more the more difficult challenges are in the third phase but I do believe at every phase there has to be challenge for me the initial phase is always about should be about low threshold activities but, it, but, you know, where the challenge might be, actually, you know, we've organised a game of ball on the Astro at 10 o'clock at night, but you're all stoned. So, listen, I'm taking the ball and going home. 
because it's not it's not safe. Now that's a challenge in itself, but it's not yeah. a challenge that's going to be a major one. I'm not trying to throw them out of somewhere, you know. So the challenge gradually builds up, but you don't try and present yourself with major challenges too early in the relationship. But for me, the challenge is the important thing because we might be the only adult that's in a position to challenge it. Mm-hmm. Now, they might tell you to F off it, and they might tell you, mind your own business, but it, invariably, I always found they will come back to you within a day or two, and the relationship, if the relationship is, if you got the relationship to the point where it should be at, they will always come back to you, and they think about it. And mm-hmm. I mean, it mightn't be that there might be any um, immediate change in their behaviour, but it will be it will be a gradual thing, because you, what you want to think about is the consequences of their behaviour, the harm that they're doing to somebody else. You know, so, yeah. you know, and that's what you want them to think about when you rob somebody's purse. How does that make that person feel? I'd be a good fan of restorative justice processes as well. Mm. You know, mm. and I think our job is supporting young people through the process. But I do think that it's a, it can be a really, really good process so they can understand the consequences and not the consequences just for them or their family, but the consequences for the victims of the crimes they commit. You know, so and it's interesting when you mention um, restorative justice because, um, you know, to me, sort of the balancing of support with challenge is a really kind of critical piece of that. So, so that that does fit very well. I want to go back to your case study of the twenty-two unsuccessful interventions. Um, What makes an intervention successful or unsuccessful? Do you think? Well, in this case, the minister asked me to put together a case study so they could look at us to see how did somebody end up in a point where they're in very, very serious trouble. So I spoke with one of our workers and spoke to his mother, the mother of the young person and spoke to the young person himself. Then obviously we didn't use any names, but I wanted to show how a young person could end up in this situation, you know, where he had multiple charges before the courts, where he was actually homeless and where he was, you know, he had no real, he was in. He had no relationship really with anybody apart from ourselves. And that was only a fairly tenuous relationship, you know. So what we we asked the mother and the youngsters to think back to their very first involvement with any services. And we we tracked it all the way through, looking at the different interventions and looking at how long they lasted and, and why they didn't work. So it would have been a typical thing. Intervention came to, came to the came to the notice of the social services as young as five. It'd be excluded from after school programs from two different centres by the eight, by sixth class because of his behaviour there, excluded from primary school by, by sixth class, into a special school, excluded from that um, because you know, their inability to manage his behaviour, you know, it, it, in contact with a number of social workers, none of which stayed with him. You know, it was the usual thing, passing on, passing on, attempt to take him into care, unsuccessful, assault of a social worker, you know, social workers refused to work with him and ended up in ended up committing very serious offences at the young age of 14 and 15, fairly early drug use, you know, being pumped out, taken to James Hospital, being pumped out because of a very, very serious drug overdose at the age of 15, you know, pressure from neighbours, pressure from the community. Like we know there are roughly 12,000 young people committing offence every year in Ireland. We know that from the Monterey Committee reports. The vast majority of them never commit any serious offences, never go on to offence. So we know the system actually works for them. But in fact, those... That bad majority tend to get quite good support from the likes of the Diversion Projects. And, and that's part of the reason why they don't go on to offend. They also get the supervision orders from the JLOs and they have that support. But it's that other, that it's that other 5 or 6% is where we need to look at. And for me, if we can identify them early enough by looking at those key risk factors, well, then it's about a wraparound, wraparound services and basically saying to those services, you don't give up on this kid. 
And like I know one of the key elements identified at the, by, the, by the recent expert group developing the new youth justice strategy. And if you remember the minister at the time who was responsible was a junior minister, who was a teacher himself, they were what one of the key things was schools had to stop using the mechanism of reduced timetables, long-term suspensions, because it, it is very clearly a key factor in the young person falling out of a whole range of other supports. If they don't go to school, if they're, if they're excluded from school or suspended from school, or if they're truanting from school, they don't get the support from the stay in school programs and the after school club and the breakfast club. They often don't get other supports that are often tied into kids being targeted by the school. So one of the key elements would be no matter what it takes, we have to try and keep that kid in structured education. And if that means structured education has to change how it works with some young people, that it's physically, it's so important that they're retained physically within that campus. Now, I'm not a favour of over-specialised programmes that think it actually further alienate some kids, but if it means basically we have a highly skilled SNA or highly skilled youth worker nearly accompanying the child every day, if they have that necessary homework support, if they have that somebody calling to their house to get them up for breakfast, and giving them a decent breakfast and making sure they're between uniform and making sure that all the things that maybe the family can't supply are supplied just to keep that kid in. And I remember mm. developing the DOCUS program in Neilstown, which was trying to do that. In other words, it only worked with a very small cohort of kids. The kids had to be attending a local school, but we recognised they had all missed more than 30 days and we were concerned about them. And uh, they were falling out of the system at a fairly early. We tended tend to target children in third class then. And um, the DOCUS project initially was about bringing them to the DOCUS, collecting them from home, knowing that many of the families were, were, were struggling, making sure they had a hot breakfast, making sure they had a clean uniform, and then dropping them to school. They had extra academic support from a teacher who was employed by the DOCUS project to work with them in school. So they could stay, so they would, they, so if they'd fallen behind that they would help them catch up. Back to the DOCUS house for their dinner and homework support sometimes an activity maybe two days a week then back home now at the same time the docus project always was also trying to give extra support to those parents because obviously we didn't want to build dependency and that and also had an interesting program at the time not sure if it's still running which was called the father's program because in many cases the, the natural father wasn't with the child and that's sometimes would lead to difficulties with the young person so trying to rebuild that relationship now obviously marion as you can as you can understand sometimes that caused conflict even with the families we were working with because you know the relationship may have ended badly but we did find did find that you know, a lot of those fathers were anxious to keep a relationship with the child just didn't have the opportunity so supervised yeah. activities between like fishing trips or days out but well, was important there yeah. and i really now again the Docus project probably couldn't have, probably didn't manage some of the most difficult children and maybe you know i would be saying we should be targeting the most difficult and sometimes the schools didn't refer the most difficult children because they had already made a decision that child isn't suitable for our school we can't cope with that child we want that child out you know mm -hmm. so for me massive wraparound services maintain the child in the, the school system even if the school system has to be extremely flexible around that but i mean and there and you know tie that into you know as many other supported mechanisms that would build resilience for that child have him in the local football club even if that means the worker is dropping him to training, collecting him training, and making sure he has his football boots. Have him in the local music group. Have him in it, have him mixing with as many positive peers as possible, just to give him a chance. I know there's a lot of money has gone into programs like strengthening families, but so but many of these kids, the parents don't have the level of parental competence 
for a whole range of reasons, I'm not being in any way judgmental. It may be addiction. It may be they're struggling massively with finance. There may be five other younger kids, you know. There may be six older kids and the parents are just completely burnt out from the trouble that's brought, been brought to the house. Mm-hmm. But you know yourself that if the parents don't have a level of parental competency, they go, they're not going to, first of all, go on the threatening family type approach. Or secondly, it's not going to be successful with them because they just don't have the, the, the skill level, or they just don't have the energy to maintain mm. it. So I, I'm, I'm in favour of trying to keep young people in their own community, in their own school, because I think that's what normality is. Mm. But I mean, I think for that to happen, there has to be massive wraparound and a wraparound on the basis that nobody can give up on this child. So we can't exclude them from the school. We can't exclude them from anything else. It's to give him the necessary supports to try and make sure that he can maintain himself in that environment, you know. How do we avoid that becoming a dependency as opposed to a support and a hand-holding? Yeah. Well, I think initially we are going to build a high level of dependency because we know that the child is not going to survive without it. And the alternative for some of those children, Marion, might be taking them into care. And unfortunately, we also know that many of those kids don't do particularly well in care because they don't want to be in care. They want to be home with their family. But if you look at at any given stage, there are probably at least 30 percent of the youngsters locked up in, in, in detention in Oberstown have come from the care system. So putting them into care isn't working for a lot of kids. In fact, if you go, if you look at the, the 19, 20 year olds in Wheatfield Prison, many of them have been in the care system. So residential care particularly if you're taking somebody in at 12, 13, 14, 15, often doesn't, doesn't seem, you know, it's, it's a challenge. It's a very, very challenging environment for the care workers. And in, in many cases, you're actually moving them away from possible supports because the care home is probably unlikely to be in their own community. So you're actually moving them away. Maybe they were getting support from the local youth worker or the Garda Youth Diversion Project. Maybe they're playing the local club, football club. That, they're often excluded from a lot of things. And then unfortunately end up in Oberstown. And Oberstown does a great job in caring. You know, it's really, it's improved considerably in terms of the facilities. And all, but they are then being released straight back into the environment and circumstances that caused them to offend in the first place, you know. So I want those resources for the young person in that community. Yes, you, the, the risk is you're going to, be, you're going to run the risk of, of high levels of dependency. And for me, I'm saying, well, maybe that's the way it has to be on the child reads even. I want that to be, I don't want this to be a two-year intervention, a three-year intervention. Unfortunately for some of those kids, things are not, we can't make things change at home. We can't, we can't stop his mother being addicted to heroin. We can't change that. So maybe we have to say, well, we're going to have to support him for the next 10 years. And gradually, as if he stays in school and he's committed to doing a leave insert, he's beginning to develop friendships and contacts he's motivated to maybe continue in education and then we can begin to reduce the level of dependency on us but i think that in many cases the depend the the interventions are far too short and then things slide again and he or she is back into that hellhole i would like to see the dependency i mean think how much it costs to to support somebody 24 7 in residential care this would be cheaper, but it would be the same level of support, except for they'd be still living at home in their community. Now, it would be a challenge. And obviously, you want the family to work with you. But I, I don't know about yourself, Mary. You worked a long time in, in the community as well. I've never come across a mother that didn't love their kids. Yeah, they might yeah. have had the skills or, or the ability yeah. to learn about it. Maybe they were caught oh. up with their own issues. But they all, wanted, they all do want the best for their kids. So do you think that sort of parental engagement should be a core aspect of youth work? Yeah, yeah I do think... I do think, I mean, at the very basic 
they, they should be aware of who we are and what we're trying to do. And we should be lucky to bring, bring them on side. I, you know, so for us, knocking on the door as a way of engaging with your person is always part of our work. And we introduce ourselves and we, we try to explain who we are, you know, and we do have that relationship going. Now, obviously, at the end of the day, the young person is our primary is our is our primary client. I'm very, very clear about that, you know, and that sometimes there can be a conflict, you know, particularly if the family are under enormous pressure, say, from a local authority and the young person has to be excluded from living there. Yeah, well, our, mm. yeah, you know, the, our primary content, our primary responsibility is to the young person we're working with. Um, and it does sometimes cause other difficulties because you become aware of younger children and you're worried about them and you're worried about reporting them to the, you know, you may have to make a report to, to uh, social services and that which can damage the relationship with the family and that. But uh, yeah, I do think getting support to family can be really important, even in terms of young men in prison, trying to motivate them to rebuild their lives. Big motivators if we can get other people to believe in the process and believe in them as well, whether it's their girlfriend or their mother, they're two very, very powerful figures in a lot of people's lives. You've been leading um, some work in the Southwest inner city over the last few years, which has, has really had an incredible rate of growth. And you've engaged with a number of different statutory funders as well as corporates and so on. So I'm just wondering like, how, how, did you manage to do that kind of scale up um, in a relatively short space of time? What were the um, what were the kind of key aspects of, of the approach that you took that that enabled the work there to get recognised yeah. and and funded? Well, I suppose one of the key one of the key uh, one of the key elements in, in our in our relative success in securing funding from a range of different departments has been you know the fact that we have proved our ability to engage with very very difficult challenged young people you know and we've stuck with them so obviously you know the you know government departments are very very keen to find organizations that are prepared to work with their most difficult the, the young people they perceive as the most difficult in the community you know and um, secondly that community that we're working in has been bereft of resources for many years there hasn't there hadn't been a youth service in southwest inner city for maybe six or seven years so you know thing. but yet the largest dublin city flat complexes are all in southwest inner city massive complexes with very very little resources so in, in one way we were we were we were highlighting the lack of youth facilities and youth resources in that community. Secondly, we were proving that it is possible to build a relationship with very, very difficult young people. And we were being innovative about the approaches that we were taking. And thirdly, you know, just never gave up knocking on people's door and saying, what about this? What about that? Why aren't you doing something with that? And highlighting it. And Marion, one of the differences I think in with youth work in compared to statutory agencies is, I've always been very, very clear about the model youth work I adhere to, which is recognizing the fact that, that many young people face obstacles in their life that are not of, of their own making. They're structural, structural obstacles to them reaching their full potential and highlighting those obstacles is part of our job as youth workers. So in other words, you know, if less than 3% of the young people from the schools we work in go on to, to, to university, but there are, you know, if you travel, if you, if you travel two miles down the road, you know, to, to schools in, in other areas of the city, 98% would be going on to third level. There's something structurally wrong there. If, yeah. if there is third, third generational unemployment in flat complexes in Southwest inner city, 
you know, and yet the national unemployment rate might be only might be as low as five or six percent. There's something structurally wrong there, you know. So the, the young people we work with face much greater obstacles in life than the young people in, in other communities, and there's something inherently unfair about that. So I think it is we it, it, the onus is on us as youth workers to challenge that structural inequality as well as support young people across the hurdles, and for young people to also understand that yes, they are faced with a bigger challenge. They are faced with a much more difficult climb to achieve in life than other young people. And for them to recognize that and for them to be involved in, in raising that issue as well. That is part of what we're about because, you know, if you have a young person coming from a family where they, there's no memory of anybody ever being employment, where poverty has been in their face every day of the week and they mm. live in, you know, they don't have holidays to France every year. They don't have surplus income at the end of the week. They are really, really struggling. You know, and even if there's no criminal involvement and no addiction in the house, the family are still struggling, you know. So, you know, for, for them, you know, the temptation for some to encourage somebody to leave school and get a job in, in a local shop or a job in, you know, a fast food takeaway, that's income coming into the house. That young people in other areas are, would never be under that pressure. In fact, the pressure would be, of course, you're going to university. Of course, you're going to college, you know, and we'll support you whatever way we can. So there's massive inequality still in Irish society. And I think mm -hmm. it's a youth worker has always been about raising those issues as well. The, uh, how have you sustained yourself and managed to stay so principled um, in your work so so focused on um, the what the young person needs understanding that bigger context of their lives and of the work that we do how have you managed to continue to be the person knocking on the door well I suppose one of the reasons why I've always managed to stay motivated was because I did work for so long in Rollinstown so I was I was constantly meeting people that I had engaged with previously and been involved in programs with me that did well, did okay for themselves. And that was a constant reminder. Yeah, yeah, okay, not every youngster is going to do well in your programs, Eddie, you know. But I mean, there are youngsters who will do really well. And there are people that you'll meet after five years and 10 years and 15 years who'll say, do you, I remember the program so well. Or I remember you pushed me to stay in school. Or I remember you encouraged me to do that course. You know, I remember you give me the form for that. And it made a huge difference in my life. You know, so that's so seeing the benefit. So, yeah. so seeing the benefit is part of the motivation thing. Now, obviously, I would have at one stage known half the men locked up on certain landings in Wheatfield Prison and they were my failures. And they were the other reminder not to get any, any way not to get ahead of yourself that there are many of the young people that you had a great relationship but still ended up in prison you know and I think that's uh, that is a constant slap in the face saying could I have done better for that young man could I have done much better for him even you know in the last couple of years going into Wheatfield prison you'd occasionally get some guy coming up to you on the corridor who'd be in his 30s or 40s and he said do you remember me and you wouldn't have a clue who he is because he's obviously aged because he'd been said, oh, no, I was in one of your, I used to call down to the drop-in in Nielsen when I lived in that area and I'm doing 10 years here or something. And you're saying to yourself, you know, that's another one I didn't do well for. That's another yeah. one that I could have put more effort in. But unfortunately, as you know yourself, youth work projects can only deal with a tiny percentage of young people in an area. If you think in an area could have, you know, if I had three primary schools and a secondary school, they're talking about a couple of hundred teachers, you know, and there might be three youth workers in that area. So, you know, I actually think, you know, the universal provision of youth work as an informal education model is so important. And yet the resources are absolutely tiny. Only a tiny percent of young people can deal with it. And I suppose, Mary, I'm going to be honest. The other thing is I never felt particularly stressed 
you know, people talk about youth work being stressful and people talk about burnout. It was never the thing for me. I actually always enjoyed being involved. I always enjoyed the time I spent in the youth centre. I, I was forever distracted from sitting at my desk and doing the necessary paperwork because I, any excuse to get up and talk to a young person was, a, was an excuse for me. So I was always in trouble for failure to fill in forms, failure to fill in mileage, failure to fill in accounts because I was so easily distracted by the young people there because I just I just enjoyed that interaction. And this, I was lucky that in my early days, I did very quickly learn the skills to be able to relate to very challenging young people. And that, you know, I, I worked out systems in my own head for stressful situations. I worked out systems for trying to manage behavior without punishment. And I think that's a real key. How can we manage young people's challenging behavior without punishing them? Because I think that's the basis of a good of a good relationship, you know. Yeah. So I've enjoyed. I mean, I'm 40 years plus a youth worker. I'm just taking retirement now, and I enjoy trying to pass on some of the skills to 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 college students now. But mm. the, you know, it's um, it's trying to convince people that it's a really really important profession, and that it's really a really important uh, program in terms of supporting those who aren't doing so well, but even supporting those who are doing well. Because I think youth work can open so many doors and so many opportunities for so many young people that it's it, it's a pity that it, it, there isn't greater investment in it you know well thanks eddie for your insights and wisdom thanks, fantastic really really great to chat with you thank you yeah Marion, i enjoyed it and it's great to meet you after all those years and yeah i still remember my very first copying on program Thanks for listening to Perspectives on Prevention, the podcast series created by the Prevention and Early Intervention Network. We hope these conversations inspire, affirm and excite you. To find out more, check out our website at www.pein.ie. To listen to all episodes of Perspectives on Prevention, be sure to subscribe to our podcast at Nearcast, Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.